Hello everybody and welcome back inside the Shark Tank for another episode of, the, of your Sales Sharks podcast. Uh, I'm back, first of all, as you can probably tell from, from my dulcet tones, so you don't have to just listen to Alex and James anymore, although they did a very good job in my absence last week, it must be said. We've got a bit of an interesting pod this week because we have uh, kind of two very divergent levels of rugby to talk about. We have, of course, sales 43-19 thrashing at the hands of Bristol on Friday afternoon, Friday night to talk about. And then on Saturday and Sunday afternoon, we've got the Six Nations to talk about. And I think as we as we move forward um, as, a, as a podcast, and I know our Patreon supporters will have seen this um, uh, over the last couple of weeks, we want to try and diversify a little bit in terms of what we're talking about on the main pod. And this is a really good opportunity with the Prem Rugby Cup and uh, uh, and the Six Nations weekend to sort of sink our teeth into. I can imagine we'll probably spend a little bit more time talking about one rather than the other. So with that all being said, Alex, how are you? I'm very good, thanks, mate. Yeah, I. Um, it's been an interesting weekend of rugby. Not really many results going, going the way that... Um, I would have wanted, it's fair to say. Um, but I think the Six Nations has been a great watch. Obviously, no way to watch Sale on Friday night. So um, quite nice to be far removed from that performance, I think, and, and sort of watch it in the cold light of day on the, on a highlights catch by Monday morning um, rather than kind of waste the Friday night sitting through it and just getting annoyed about things. So, yeah, all good, mate, and, and very... Um, yeah, very positive about certainly the entertainment uh, on offer in rugby. Because I think, you know, sale aside, obviously an entertaining game, unless you're a sale fan. Um, we're going to talk about the Six Nations and there's three really, really entertaining games for me um, and, and sets up the competition nicely, I think. And, and James, how are you? I mean, there's one thing I, I want to ask your opinion on that Alex has already mentioned, but I'll, I'll let you say a little hello to the listeners first before I pick your brain on that one. Hello, listeners. <laughs> okay, let's get into it then. What's so, the question? <laughs> Alex mentioned it. Friday night, the only game of domestic rugby on, uh, at least in England. Um, no way to watch it. Now, if you're a Sale fan, as Alex has also alluded to, probably for the best, because uh, Sale obviously uh, got their arses handed to them uh, by, the, by the score of 43-19, to 19, as mentioned earlier. But... I guess if you're, I don't know, James, right? If you're a rugby fan, it's Friday night. You don't really fancy watching, you know, the, the under-26 nations. And you, you're like, okay, there's a game on. I'll, I'll flick that on. No way to watch it. What, what, where, where, do you, uh, where do you stand on that? Because it was such a peculiar thing to, to notice. One game of rugby and no one can uh, watch it. I think that's probably what the broadcasters probably looked at and thought, well, it's, it's a game out by itself. So there's not really a narrative that you can build for the weekend. And if you're in media, that's what you're looking to do, isn't it? Join us on Friday night. It's the start of, you know, a weekend, the Premiership Cup action. It's the last opportunity to qualify for the semi-finals and all of that. But actually, there was nothing at stake in this game, really. You know, it was a home semi-final, which was always unlikely for sale. You know, so I think having Ford back just just lifted the interest in the game where people were going, oh, where can I watch it? And then there's probably some diehard sale fans, maybe like 40 of us who would have put ourselves through it. And other than that, is it really worth it? You know, and the difference is paying some, you know, three people, four people to go and present and, you know, a few extra cameramen and cameras, a bit more of the editing and the prep in terms of what they're going to talk about, introing the teams and all this kind of stuff. So I think I can actually understand it in this instance because it was quite an isolated game. Genuinely, though, I've been annoyed for quite some time that, that companies buy the rights to things and then don't actually show any of the games. So we've had this with the Challenge Cup, haven't we? You know, if you're not going to show any of the Challenge Cup games, put it on free sports or put it on, you know, Channel 3, Channel 4, Channel, channel 5, any channel. Um, you know, even if you're only getting a small amount. And that's the problem, you know, everyone's so worried about selling the rights to the sport at too low a value. But I just think, well, there's no value at the moment because it doesn't, there's nothing getting shown. So sell it for 50 quid 
and get, you know, half a million people watching it, I think would be definitely a return on investment. So I think there needs to be a complete change in the mindset of Premiership Rugby and European Rugby and also in the RFU to think about, same with the Championship, what return on investment needs to be seen as a much broader thing. Um, and if you diversify your thinking, you can actually diversify, you know, if you're commercial, you can still diversify your revenue streams. Get on free to wear, or can you, know, can you take, during the game, can you take a bit more of a cut of the advertising revenue? Yeah? What about some of the other sponsorships that you could bring into the game because you're reaching a bigger audience? So surely the sponsorship for your Prem Cup shirt or something that you release for the first time, um, you know, could actually mean something. Same with the championship sides, you know. You know, at the moment, the only people watching, you know, the, with Coldy are the highest viewed people. You know, people going to like two thousand people going to watch Coldy. Now, the only one seeing some local builders' business from Coldy on the shirts. But get it on free to wear. Maybe there's only two hundred thousand that watch it. Well, that seems to me to be a better effort than uh, and not at all. So, so my advances in two parts. Number one, I understand it in this instance, but secondly. We need to get a much broader thinking about how we sell our rights to this uh, to this sport. It's it's so interesting because this game in particular, if you're a sale fan, right? It's Friday night, you're a sale fan, the, the playing away. There's a natural level of interest, right? I would have watched it uh, if if I could um, on a Friday because it's Friday night and I like watching sale on a Friday night. You add in the intrigue of this as being George Ford's first game in a sales shirt, and it made sense as well for, for Sale to bring it back in a, in a cup game where there's not necessarily anything riding on it. But, you know, you're, you're telling me that, well, to be honest, anyone who listens to this podcast isn't tuning in for that. It, you know, of course they would. And I guess that kind of comes to my point, which is, you know, what's the point in PR TV if you're not going to show, if you're not going to give people the ability to watch this game? You know, the whole thing is you can watch any Premiership rugby game anywhere in the world, etc. But you know, I can't watch George Ford's first game in the cell shirt. It's crazy. Anyway, uh, Alex, any any thoughts on that? Just just very briefly uh, before we actually talk about the the game at hand. Yeah, I think it just it's just the added dynamic of this being the Premier Rugby Cup and and no one really knowing what to do with this competition. Um, you know, it's not been marketed well from the start generally, and. This is just, a, I feel like, another example of that. Because if this had been a one-off premiership game, it had been on TV. It had been George Ford's first game. So it comes down to, this is a one-off Premier Rugby Cup game, and this comp- that competition has no value. Um, it, I, I really don't think anyone is, cares about it, being brutally honest here. You know, we're in the semi-finals, and, I mean, we're all saying, yeah, it would have been great for it to be on TV. Has it ruined our? Is it you know? Is it a nightmare? Has it ruined our weekend? No, because it's Premier Rugby Cup and it's a stupid format where we're playing a game when we're already in the semi-final. It's it's um, yeah. I feel like there's a, a massive issue with sort of marketing that product because because I don't understand how the Premier Rugby Cup works. I therefore can't get excited about Sail Away at Bristol other than watching Sail play because I don't actually know you know. We did the podcast last week and I didn't know what we needed to win by to get through. You're just sort of on the website trying to work out from the table where on earth, you know, where on earth you're going to land and, and what that means for, for your fixtures. So, yeah, I think there's there's a point about, James's point about how you market the product is, is very, very good and very salient. There's just another point around, you know, even if you're talking about how you market the product, I think in this instance, you've got to look at the products and the Prem Rugby Cup as a product is, is a bad one for me and, and it needs a rethink. But it won't. It'll carry on as this Premiership second team competition, which doesn't really add anything to anyone other than to give a team at the bottom of the league generally the chance to win a trophy because their Premiership season's over because there's no relegation. That's the way... That this competition has worked for a few years. Worcester getting the win a couple of seasons ago, us winning it. You know, has it been a springboard to greater things? I don't know. I mean, it's 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 a good marker of of where a team's at, but I'm not sure our Prem Rugby Cup win has given the squad anything because, well, it was three years ago now, and 
and the squad has changed in composition quite a lot. You know, that Brentwood Cup win was led by Patrick Clerk and Johnny Ross and, and, you know, neither of them are regular starters per se anymore. Um, so, yeah, I, the, the competition itself needs a rethink. The way we market the game is a massive, massive question. Um, and I think it's not necessarily an opportunity missed, but it's just a very, very good sort of example of, of where the issues lie, both in the marketing of rugby and in that competition. Well, the good news is, regardless of the results, Sale are actually through to the semi-finals of the competition, despite getting thumped by 26, uh, 24 points on Friday, and will play Exeter uh, away at Sandy Park next weekend. Um, but before we touch upon that very briefly, um, I guess, Alex, there really isn't much to talk about from this game, right? Sale go down 31 points to five by half time. Bristol are up for it. We don't really seem to be. The two teams on paper are very much uh, rotated teams. You know, it's first starts for like Ben Bamba, uh, Ruben Birch from a sale perspective. Alex Groves gets a first start as well. I'm looking at this Bristol team and even as a relatively educated rugby fan, there's names on there that I, I don't recognise and, and I imagine it'd be the same for a lot of casual fans. Um yeah, so I, I guess before we talk about the one thing that is interesting about this game, which is George Ford, um, anything you want to kind of pick apart from, from this match as, as being of note? I am genuinely really struggling. Um, <laughs> it's really hard, isn't it? I mean, I, th- I think from the very, like, you know, brief watch of it, I think Rafi's confidence looks slightly improved. Obviously, a lot more space on the field, but... A couple of moments that were quite nice, you know, a snipe from the base of a rook um, that I think shows is, is what Rafi used to do so well. So um, it's a very slow process, I think, and, and gradual, but hopefully he um, he continues to to improve in, in his confidence in that regard. And I thought Tom Curtis um, is, is still playing quite well at the moment and, and you know, probably deserved to be playing behind a bit of a better or more dominant pack at least and, and that might have made a difference but we just got carved open by Bristol didn't we um you know when you watch the highlights um it's five minutes of blue Bristol shirts just going like a hot knife through butter through a red sail defense listen it's Brem Rugby Cup so I'm not going to get too worried about it but it, there is a, a slight concern that you know the system the defensive system can just fall to bits like that. Um, and it's, you know, it's a massive sea change in, in personnel. So I don't think it's a, a club issue and a, an issue that we need to worry about going back into the Premiership in a couple of weeks' time. But I think the, the game against Exeter is going to be very tough away from home uh, to get anything from if we play like that because it, it just, it was really, really easy. And as you said, this wasn't, you know, full strength Bristol team but Bristol are very very good at you know it's the one club you don't want to play if you're going to leave a load of gaps all over the field Bristol and maybe Quinns as well because they're just really good at exploiting it they've got a lot of pace and, and a lot of exciting players who can who can take advantage of when you leave gaps in your defence so yeah that, that's the main worry for me is just you know conceding that many points and, and the ease of the tries that were scored it wasn't when you watch it, it wasn't great play by Bristol. It was just big gaps in defence. And, and that might be a, a concern, but hopefully it's just a, you know, it's a reflection of the uh, the standing of this particular competition in this game and, and the amount of changes we made. Um, so, yeah, let's not worry too much yet. But if uh, we go into the Northampton game with that sort of defence, they are going to absolutely run all over us. It is interesting as well because the, the thing that I took away from watching this is you realise just how how important that sort of physical maturation piece is in terms of de- determining between a a first team player and like a, a prospect or an academy player. Like you, you know, you watch some of those Bristol tries and you know Tom Curtis, Elliot Gurley. You know, some of the younger players are missing tackles, and, and you look at it and you, and you think, okay, you know, that's just off the back of maybe not being at, at sort of peak physical condition, you know, just yet. You know, it takes time. It takes reps in the Premiership. It takes reps playing against you know people who've been doing it for four, five, six years. 
you also then look at you know a couple of a couple of maybe soft tries. Jason Woodward didn't necessarily have you know his best game. Um, I mean, it's a point of his second appearance for Sale, I believe. Um, but you know, again, it's just like little things where it, it, Sam Hill. I don't think had a particularly good game. You start to understand kind of why these players maybe aren't getting the first team opportunities that you think, and and that's not meant in a in a um, dismissive way. It's just you know there are now players in the in the team who are a step quicker than than Jason Woodward is now, or there are players who are, are able to make better decisions, you know, ball in hand or or whatever. And and you know the the, the fact that realistically we, we never really got close, I think, is, is probably a, a testament to that. Um, and the fact we scored five points in the first half is because you know we weren't able to get any sort of dominance up front, and, and that's what happens when you, you know your your back five forward players are you know Bamba, Groves, Murphy, Dugdale, and Birch. You know, aside from Sam Dugdale, I, I don't think those players combined have double digit Premiership appearances. You know, and it was always going to be a bit of an uphill battle, but I think it's just games like this where you kind of see, okay, that's kind of where the drop-off is. And if nothing else, we can use this as a bit of a marker to say, okay, if our squad depth gets down to that level, that's maybe where we are going to struggle against, uh, you know, even a even a second-string premiership team. Um, I guess, James, the, the only other thing to talk about then um, is the debut of, of George Ford, the long-awaited debut of George Ford in a sales shirt. Um, only played 44 minutes, um, sorry, 43 minutes, uh, as, as you'd probably expect on, on his return from, from quite a long injury. Um, any, any quick thoughts on, on kind of Ford making his sale debut? I mean, I guess the main thing here is it's just good to see him get through the game unscathed. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think we could expect anything more, I think. Once the team went down quite quickly in the first half, like points-wise, you know, the team knew they weren't playing for anything. Um, and with George Ford, it's like, you know, why risk it? There's just literally no point in being on this pitch for this game. Um, you know, so I think it was the right decision to take him off. Um, and it wasn't just his return. Cunha stays and has been out for a long time as well and made his return um, for sale. And I think just just go back to the conversation you and Alex have had, if I may, just sort of say, actually... You're right in your observation around some of these Sale players. But you look at the Bristol team, you know, when you've got when Sale have got a front row of Rod, Taylor and Ustazen, they should be, okay, J- Jake Wool- Woolmore is first choice, that's it. Yeah? So our front row should be dominant in that regard. And in the second row, these are two players that have something to prove because both Bamba and Groves were released by Bristol um, during last season. And they're coming up against youngsters like Charlie Rice and Joe Owen in the back row, who are both kind of like second row stroke blindside flankers that have obviously been retained in the knowledge that Groves and Bamba are a bit. So there's a bit of grudge match there. So I think that the fact that we kind of maybe just didn't get it right physically and the fact that Bamba and Groves have been packing down together for CLFC all year, you know, you would have expected that to have been a bit tighter um, for sure. Um, Ruben Birch, you know, and you look at the back row, okay, Dan Thomas is a seasoned professional. Um, but other than that, Joe Owen and, and Aaron Tull, I mean, these are these are very young players who only Bristol fans are going to know anything about. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, their strongest selection was Euron and Sheedy, but we had Quirk and Ford. So, you know, outside of that, really, I think that one of the main observations about the sale team was disjointed. Gurley's a 15, been playing 15 all year and is suddenly playing on the wing. Tom Curtis is a 10-stroke 12 and is suddenly being asked to defend in the most difficult defensive position in the team at 13, you know. Woodward hasn't played all year. You know, Hill's just massively out of form. You know, you'd expect, I don't want to, you know, to, to be sort of making horrible assumptions and this is not meant in a horrible way, but honestly, I don't think we're going to have Hill and, and Woodward here next year. Um, so, you know, for Woodward against his old team, that's an interesting thing. You've got to allow these players to put themselves in the shot window as well. That's the right thing to do. I'm probably quite core to the Sanderson project. But it's, it was quite a disjointed selection in the backs, I think. So for George Ford to bring it back, I think that's quite difficult as a 10. When it's your first game, you haven't had much training, you're looking to build connections and relationships with people. Therefore, 44 minutes with Rafi Quirk, really useful. 44 minutes with Sam Hill and, and all the rest of them, probably probably less so. 
I think that probably does it for the uh, the, the Premier Rugby Cup chat. I mean, I guess a, a very quick thought on on next week's game uh, away at Exeter with a with an opportunity to play in the final. I mean, I guess Alex, I'll go back to you because you had you know some very strong thoughts on on this competition. If, if you're Sale, you've got this kind of gift of a rest period, uh, you know, with only Premier Rugby Cup games whilst the Six Nations are on. Um, what, what do you do with your team selection for next week? Do you kind of stick with this team that, let's face it, got, got quite thoroughly outplayed on Friday? Or do you maybe look to start to rotate some of your first team players back in? A, because you've got the opportunity to, to compete for a trophy. Uh, and B, because it might be an opportunity to get some match fitness back in the legs of, of, of players like maybe like a Dan Dupria who, who hasn't played for, for you know, a, a good number of weeks. Yeah, I think there's definitely a balance. There's some people who need the rest. So I would have Rafi and Will Cliff going again because I think Gus Wall's played a hell of a lot of rugby. But I think there's some people, and James and I were talking about this last week as well, that I have not been in their best form and, and probably more game time will help. So the likes of Ross Harrison getting some more game time, I don't think would be a bad thing. You know, we've obviously got McIntyre and Anusazen coming back as well. Um other sort of, you see, I think Quirk and Ford go again, but then in the forwards, as you said, Dan Dupree is a good shout, but there's someone like Josh Beaumont, um, you know, people who aren't guaranteed starters. There's definitely a, a halfway house between a premiership team and a and the team we saw at Bristol, because I think fundamentally, if we're going to win away at Exeter, we're going to need more than we had on Friday night at Bristol. And I think if you roll out the same team, then the result is not going to be dissimilar, unfortunately. Um, so, yeah, it's that sort of hybrid approach. And the back three, again, we talked about, we've got some areas of really good depth in this squad, and that's where I'd be making the changes. So we've got Joe Carpenter and Luke James at fullback. One of them is going to start against Northampton, one of them isn't. So one of them should probably play against Exeter. Uh, at the wing, we've got O'Fahty, Reed, Roebuck, Gourlay, you know, if you kept with Roebuck and Gourlay, Roebuck coming back from injury and, and Gourlay having you know had a decent game and, and having a try or two, I think um, I, don't, I wouldn't be against that. But you know there are there are areas where the squad is is stretched and and therefore it doesn't really make quite as much sense to you know put a first team player in who could get injured who will then be a bit tired for the Northampton game, bit of fatigue. So. Yeah, it's it's a really difficult one to be honest because it's it's a hard balance to get, but I think there needs to be some changes, but not wholesale changes. So I think particularly in that sort of back five of the 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 pack um, for the back row and the second row, we'll see some changes, which is probably probably right. Other than that, I, I don't know whether there'll be massive massive changes. Certainly in the backs, I think. If, if you look at who's, you know, Sam James again, he's playing a lot of rugby, so needs a rest. I, I think that back three could probably go again, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, be, it'll be a really interesting selection because it's hard to predict, isn't it? And you, you, you've not got, you've not got this right. Who's the strongest squad that's available or who's played well? Because it's been a pretty poor game, all told, on Friday night. So I think some people will be replaced. But as I say, I think wholesale changes is, is is a bad idea because you know that Northampton game is a is a massive game and, and every Premiership game is a big game now because we're trying to push for a home semi final. So we need to be well rested for that because they're a very very fit team and a, and a very dangerous one. In if you've got a tired defence, so yeah, it's not really an answer to your question, but I think there's a few tweaks to be made um, without without wholesale changes. So sorry for being so vague but this competition is vague I was going to say I mean the, the, these are the the answers that the Premier Rugby Cup really generate because fundamentally it's very difficult do you play full strength team the entire time we'll, we'll know it's probably not worth sacrificing the rest that it gives your first team squad but at the same time you can't just play the kids for three weeks straight like in your first team you know opportunities as well so um, it's, a, it's a funny old competition, and, and uh, I think on that note, we can we can probably move on, and we move on from maybe the the lowest ebb of, of what we'll talk about all all season to potentially the highest ebb as we we turn our attention to the 2023 Six Nations tournament, which began 
obviously on Saturday afternoon. So um, a, a bit like we, we've done in the past for our Patreon listeners, you know, we'll keep this one relatively light. You know, we want to talk predominantly just, you know, just, just, just about kind of, you know, cool things we saw over the weekend and, and kind of what it all means. And um, I, I guess maybe we start chronologically and, and talk about the Ireland-Wales game. Uh, obviously a bit of, bit of sale interest there because uh, it was the first game uh, for new Welsh defence coach uh, Mike Forshaw, formerly of the Sale Parish. Um, and unfortunately, it wasn't necessarily uh, beginner's luck for Forshaw as, uh, as Wales got um, <clears throat> thumped uh, by a very strong-looking Irish team, 34 points to 10 at the Principality Stadium. So, you know, James, as, as, as we have done for the last five years, you're our Welshman, or there or thereabouts. I mean... I guess the thing is, what, what what would you expect? You know, Warren Gatlin's first game back in charge. He's not a miracle worker. <laughs> God, no, he's to be well. He is. He's performed miracle over a long, long period of time. I think what he's working out is his mate. You know, have I got enough magic dust left to? You know, I mean, the, 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 we've done this to death, but the WIU is in such a fucking state. Apologies for language listeners, but it really is. You have to swear when you when you look. You think the RFU are bad? <laughs> you know, the, the WIU are just, I mean, there's literally no point in having them. I think um, Wales will take a bit out of the second half um, and a bit out of a couple of, of debutants. Hawkins went quite well in the centre until he lost his legs really in the second half. Um, and uh, I thought Jenkins came on and, 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 and did, you know, pretty a pretty good shift. Jack Morgan came into the game as it went along. So there's a few things which they can hang their hat on, but that that's pretty much it, really. I thought that... Go on, Liz. I was going to just, just add to that and say Rio Dyer, I thought, had a pretty pretty solid game yeah. as well. And if you're looking for positives, those three players, you know, early 20s, coming through the, the regions of Wales, it, it's, it's something... There, there is something there. I mean, the, the bad news for Wales is that their their age group size have not been doing very well for a very, for quite a long time. So they're not unearthing a sort of Jonathan Davis, Jamie Roberts, you know, Sam Warburton kind of you know generation of players here. But there's probably enough there to go. Okay, well, there's there's enough excitingness that Gatland or someone like that can piece something together. But I just thought that Ireland just just took the wind out of. Wales really early doors. Um, Bigger had a really difficult five minutes. I felt a bit sorry for him. Obviously, intercept try not ideal. I thought that the uh, Keenan's defence for that one, where Bigger tried to go around the outside of a tripping up Ringrose, and he, Ringrose just got to him. But the key there was Keenan's defence because he was drifting out to the winger, and he just made that because Bigger had just been intercepted. I'm pretty sure that Bigger would have thrown the pass uh, otherwise. And probably would have hit the man and there would have been a try in the corner. So I think that the first half really took the wind out of Wales. And fair play to them to come back. I thought they showed a lot of guts. And I think that, you know, for the dominance that they had in the second half, they should have at least got a couple more tries and made the game interesting. But, you know, Martin Johnson's view, maybe a little harsh, but probably accurate, was that, you know, Ireland had had the game won, really. And it was on Wales to execute, to score. They couldn't manage to do that. And if they had, Ireland probably had a couple more gears to, to, to go back to. So Ireland looked like a tremendous side. They played at a pace that Wales couldn't, couldn't cope with. The likes of Ken Owens, you know, it's a bit similar to the England situation with Owen Farrell, apart from Owen Farrell's obviously a lot younger. But, you know, it's like once you make your captain, you are stuck with your captain. Uh, Jimmy Lake is injured for Wales, who's probably the next cap off the rank. But I thought Owens looked off the pace, honestly. Not short of effort, but off the pace. Thought Alan Wynne Jones put in a massive shift for 37. Like he's probably not covered that much ground on a rugby pitch for a long time. But it's run off his feet by just a, a team that is able to recycle ball and go through phase play at a pace that no other team in the world does at the moment. Um, I think it was it was a very impressive performance by Ireland. They managed to get Sexton through just in one piece, and um, I think that you know next next week is is pretty salivating. I mean, I guess, James, you, you've answered the Wales part of the equation. I mean, Alex, how, I mean, I'm being presumptuous here, but how impressed were you by that Irish team and, and that Irish performance? Because they they certainly looked good, didn't they? 
Yeah, you know, this this Irish team have got a habit of looking really, really good up until about some time before the World Cup and then falling off. And and what's a worry for the rest of the international sides on the on the circuit is that um they're going into the Six Nations looking just as good as they did in the autumn. Um they look like a team who got a series win against the All Blacks. You know, they're they're an incredible team. The, the James is right, the pace they play at, just no one can live with that. And and it's accuracy of execution which um, was kind of a theme of the weekend, I think, as well, generally. But when you're playing at that pace to to pick the right pass, to make the right decision, to then recycle the ball quickly and do it again, is really impressive. And bear in mind, you know, they lost their starting scrum off about an hour before kickoff or whatever it was, um, and and had to go back into kind of the Conor Murray world, which is you know, fundamentally a slightly different style of play to how they've been playing. And and what's, I think, really encouraging for Ireland is that that just, the system just carried on. The system kept working. And, you know, they lost two players on the day of the game and the system just rolled them. And and that's that's what makes them so dangerous to play against because that's how New Zealand used to play. It didn't matter who they picked, that, you know, the style of rugby was the same and the result was the same. It was a win and it was a a very, very dominant one. And I think that's what it was. Again, you know, you could just see Wales, especially after, you know, the anthems and the closed roof. I think what Ireland did so well was to start the game and within two minutes have got over the try line just through sheer pace and it just completely... I think that that moment almost killed any Welsh belief because they went oh, yeah, they are really good and they're not going to have an off day. They're going to have a really good day. And if Ireland weren't, the only way Ireland were going to lose that game is by having a massive off day. Um, and, and they didn't. So I think that's their their real strength is their speed, That not only the speed they play at, but the speed they start games and, and how quickly they're up and at the level they need to be. So, yeah, massively impressed. As you say, next weekend is going to be an absolute cracker. Um, that'll be the, the championship, no doubt. We decided on that weekend, really. Um, you know, and I think when you look at the other games, it's a very, very exciting time to be an Ireland fan because France didn't look quite as imperious as they have um, over the last couple of seasons, made a lot of errors. So it's a massive opportunity for Ireland to make a huge statement in the Six Nations. And I think going into the World Cup cycle, other than being very reliant on Johnny Sexton at 10, they're in a really good position. They've managed to find in Jameson Gibson Park a successor to Colin Murray, which was one of the big questions. They've got a pack that is mobile and strong and young more than anything. You know, we're still talking about picking the likes of James Ryan, Ty Byrne, Caelan Doris. You know, these this isn't Wales picking 35-year-olds. This is players in their prime. So I think that's the scary thing as a as a fan of anyone but Ireland. Um, you know, sorry, I don't mean that as in the way Scotland sport anyone, but England. I mean, as a fan of a team that's not Ireland, if you're looking at them, you go in. They've got all the tools. They've got, you know, they're in really good form, and basically just everything is is sort of looking like they are gonna gonna be the ones to beat. Not only in this Six Nations for sure, but in the World Cup in uh, in six months' time. So yeah, massively impressed and and slightly. Well, uh, very happy for Ireland because I think Andy Farrell has built something really good and it shows that, you know, you pick a good coach, you stick with him, you give him time to develop and, and you end up with a really, really good product. And they've it's it's a very, very good player base. And I think it speaks a lot to how Irish rugby is run. And you look at how the RFU and the WIU have left England and Wales, you know, it's, it's, it's no coincidence that you've ended up with these two very disparate sort of performances from Wales and Ireland when you look at, the way the structure is around the game, both domestically and, and on the international stage. I think that, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, because that's actually one of the points I wanted to make, which is Ireland are the, probably, Ireland and France are the biggest success stories in world rugby at the moment, when you look at governance and how the game is being managed in, in those places. And if you're a Welsh rugby fan, at least it gives you some hope that the, the regional model um, and having the unions and, and all the rest of it can can work because it works in Ireland, you know, with a similar population size. I know that obviously the, the circumstances are are quite different, but you know, Ireland has shown that 
there is a model outside of France with with a lot of private investment and and, and less sort of uh, demand and interest in football um, that it can work. You know, and that's and that's one thing. And actually, you know, we we talk a lot about the things that the RFU aren't doing well, or maybe what World Rugby aren't doing well. But actually, it's worth acknowledging that this structure in Ireland is is working really well. And if you're like like myself, if you're in Australia at the moment and you look at how can how can they get back to where they need to be, that Irish model looks like a, a pretty good uh, blueprint to to follow. Um, I think that's probably everything on. Ireland Wales. Let's let's move on. Second game of the day, four forty-five, uh, and it's a, a third win on the bounce for for the Scottish over the English. So, um, Alex, you, uh, you you had to pick second there, so I'll let you go first. Um, what were your thoughts on on this one? Um, do you want to talk Scotland? Do you want to talk England? Do you want to talk both? You know, what what are your what, what were your thoughts on that game? Yeah, I think well, I think it's it's easiest to look at both because. Listen, England played relatively well compared to how they've been playing. Um, I thought there was some really, really good attacking fluidity that we haven't seen. I think there was some sort of there was clearly there was less fear or less you know less stifled. I think the game was a bit more open, which helped. I'm not saying that Eddie Jones is a god and everyone's suddenly playing amazing rugby. That's not the case, but. I think as a first out, England and Steve Borthwick, it was a good performance. The problem was they came up against a Scotland side who are genuinely at this moment in time better than them. And they played better on the day and they are a better squad and they're, a better, they're more settled. Listen, Gregor Townsend's been at Scotland for a hell of a long time now. They've got a system that works. They're playing very confident rugby. They've got a squad that knows each other well. You know, Finn Russell... Um, is back in and, and playing with the likes of, you know, you can see the link up between the players to Pilotto. Obviously, they went well in the autumn. Dioan van der Merwe is obviously an absolutely outstanding talent on the wing. Um, there's a confidence about Scotland that I think you haven't seen for a long time. But also, they've got players who, you know, Finn Russell is playing in European quarterfinals and semifinals for Racing. That means that when the pressure's on, He's, you know, he's performed at the top level and a lot of Scottish players have, have done that. And I think that's what you see from this Scotland team is that they have got much more calmness and bravery in those final minutes. And, and actually, the Scotland team of old wouldn't have won that game. They'd have found a way to lose it. And I think this was sort of mentioned on commentary. But let's be honest, they deserve to win the game. So, you know, the fact that they won it is just... It's as expected because Scotland were the better team. And in England looked like a team who were trying to learn a new system under a new coach. The defensive, uh, well, England's defence generally was pretty woeful. Uh, the individual tackling wasn't great, but the system clearly is a bit broken. And I imagine that's because it's being rebuilt by, by Kevin Zimpel. He's got the Six Nations to try and, you know, work out what works. He's then got some World Cup warm-ups and then the real test will be in September, October. But clearly there's there's a change in defensive system because the gaps that England left all over the field were were massive. And, and you know, you just can't do that. You look at um, Scotland's first try, Owen Farrell jumps in on, on the man and, you know, it's the hole opens up. It's absolutely massive. You look at the even the Duan van der Merwe try, the, the kick chase is poor but the the field is so broken and you know you've got Scotland's most dangerous carrier in a load of space with no pressure on the catch from the kick um I think I think it's all to me it was all about systems and and one squad looks very settled and knew how they were playing and that meant when it got tight in the final 10 minutes one team was going to come out on top because they've been doing this for five six years together and they all know how they play whereas the other team I mean, our back row had never played together before. You know, Curry's winning his first international cap. Ludlam's had a handful. Um, you, you go at, at Jack Van Portfleet at nine, he's been in and out of the squad because no one can decide whether Ben Youngs needs to play or not. Smith and Farrell actually haven't played together that much. But I, I think there's, there's plenty to be positive about from an English perspective to me. Listen, this isn't Scotland of old. This isn't you know, we should have rolled them over and Scotland have 
put in their one performance of the championship. This is just a very good Scotland team who were better than us. So I sorry, I'm speaking as an English fan now, obviously. Um it's hard to be too too despondent about it from my perspective. I think that Scotland should be very, very happy with that result. The real test, as it always is, it's very easy for Scotland to go and beat England because it's so easy to mentally get up for it. But listen, on that performance, they should be finishing minimum third in this championship, if not more. And you can guarantee that when the pressure comes on against Ireland and France, that's the acid test of this Scotland team. So, you know, that's that's where they go. Where England go, I think, is, listen, it's a really tough fixture against Italy next week now. So it's a massive actually it's actually a massive test it's it's it will come on to Italy later um i think there's a lot of good signs and a lot of progress already been made so i think there's positives but if england defend like they did against scotland against italy we could genuinely see italy get the first win over england in the six nations because that was the really poor aspect of the game and i imagine it's kevin simfield will be absolutely beasting them in in training this week because um it really wasn't good enough. So, yeah, a, a really interesting game, but just to, I think, a reflection of the way the power has shifted in the Scotland-England kind of dynamic from how it used to be. And I, it's really interesting that point you made about this being, what, the fifth or sixth year that this team has been together, and you're starting to see quite a few of these project players that Scotland brought over a few years ago really starting to pay dividends. Now, now Van der Merwe was the one who took, you know, like a, like a duck to water, to European rugby, but you know, Siani Tuapalotu was a player who was sort of in and out of, of Super Rugby teams, and again, sort of brought over a bit of a project play. If you remember Sam Johnson, you know he was a, a similar, you know, sort of similar ilk. And I thought Tuapalotu was outstanding. Um, you know, just defensively very strong, moving moving the ball forward. Very good, great ball carrier. You know, a real sort of five-tool player. Good hands. You know, even obviously puts the kick in for um, for the first try. Look at Cal Stain. You know, another player who um, you know brought in as a project player. You know, is sort of had spot starts here and there, but it's starting to sort of look like he's uh, a proper test player. Jack Dempsey, former Wallabies international. You know, he came off the bench and and, and put in a pretty good shift for 10-15 minutes. Whether or not you agree with the approach that Scotland have taken or, or have had to take in terms of how they built their squad, it's been, it has it has augmented and it has improved their team. Um, I think that's the, the really interesting thing now, which is, you, you know, you can sort of go 1 through 15 and you can raise a number of eyebrows in terms of how many players are, are well, don't sound particularly Scottish, um, but, you know, Pierre Sherman... Uh, you know, you Jack Dempsey, you two plot, you stay, whoever. They, these are players who are making a difference at the international level, and it's because of that, and because of how long those players have been together, not just in Scotland, but also with with Glasgow or with Edinburgh, that you're really starting to see that that come out on the test field. And you know, we saw it with Argentina a few years ago, or, or and the hope is that Italy can replicate that. But it does make a big difference when you can get your players playing together consistently, and, and Scotland pay dividends. Yeah, and just on that point, I think what Scotland have done well is is they've clearly filled gaps in the squad with, you know, you, you look at, they always struggle in the front row, Schumann and Nell come in. Um, obviously, Van der Merwe is slightly different because they have got s- some good wingers, but he's a level above anything they've got. Um, in the second row, someone like Grant Gilchrist, you're right, they're sort of, they're complementing, it's, it, it's weird to talk about an international side like this, but they're complementing very good homegrown players with very good project players in the mm. way that, say, a Saracens did or Sale are trying to do. Um, and and that's proven to be a very successful team. We can have another conversation about whether that's the right approach or not. But I think if you're a Scotland fan at the moment, why would you really care? If, you know, if, it's, if World Rugby are letting you do it and yeah. it's fully you know, all above board, and it's going to make you a very successful team, then it's very hard as someone who's paid by the SRU in Gregor Townsend to not then pick the players who are going to win you games. So, yeah, as you, I agree. No, absolutely. Um, and like you said, the litmus test now is, you know, for the last two years of beating England and not really done much else in the competition, can they take that next step? 
Um, and James, you know, I'll get your thoughts on England uh, momentarily, but it almost seems to struggle from the opposite problem, whereas Scotland have a smaller player pool and have augmented that with international players. I don't know about you, but again, it, it still feels like we are, and, and to be fair, this is Steve Borthwick's first game in charge, you know, we, we are still maybe unsure of kind of what the best 15 is for, for England at the moment. And I thought, to me, quite glaringly, you look at the number of players in this squad who are good premiership players, but maybe aren't uh, stepping up in that test arena, I think is quite, is quite apparent. You know, Lewis Ludlam, I don't necessarily think is a test player. Alex Dombrandt, I don't think is a test player. Um, I'm, I'm not really seeing anything from Joe, Mer- uh, Joe Marchant to be a test player. All these players are very good premiership players. But whereas Scotland or, or maybe even Ireland are having to, you know, kind of pick who who they have available, England almost have the the opposite problem where there's too many good players to pick and, and there's all these constant uh, rotations of players and we're we're still we're still yet to find that kind of magic formula. Um, where do you where do you stand on England's performance then? Do you think it's a player personnel issue? Do you think it's bedding in a new system? You know, there's there's lots of options. I think it's. I think it's, it's obviously a mixture of all of the above. And Scotland, you know, playing them first up in the tournament two years in a row is unlucky. Scotland have two professional sides to mould together in the couple of weeks before the first game. England will get stronger as the tournament goes on. The question is whether you've already lost enough to kind of have that momentum sucked out of you. And you know, from an Ellie Jones perspective, I feel a little bit sorry from on the selection thing because I know some of his selections were left field in squads and apprenticeship players and things like that. But he was under huge amounts of pressure. Pick Sam Simmons, pick Sam Simmons, pick Sam Simmons, pick Sam Simmons, pick Sam Simmons. Sam Simmons, no good. Pick Don Brand, pick Don Brand, pick Don Brand. Eventually picks Don Brand. Guess what? He's got 11 caps, not done anything for England. Um, you know, pick Smith, pick Smith, pick Smith, pick Smith. I mean, he's maybe had one or two good games in his 15 caps or whatever. You're right. You, you're picking out the right players. A lot of people point fingers at Ollie Hassel Collins and Ben Curry. It's their first bloody cap. You're lucky to come off alive from your first cap. Yeah? You just take the fact you still your heart's still going and you're still in one piece from a first cap. Any era. Listen to the likes of Lawrence Delalio when they talk about their first cap. Can't remember it. Feel completely out of their depth. Barely touch the ball. It's at a pace they don't recognise, whatever. So it takes a bit of time to adjust. Well, guess what? When you've got more than 10 caps, you've had enough time to adjust. And these players that have been brought in under public pressure by Eddie Jones haven't improved the side since 2019. And so Borthwick's left with a choice of, do you bring back the likes of Cole? You know, what? You know, are we going to end up with a Farrell and Tulangi centre partnership with Ford at 10? You know, Because if these players are coming in and not improving on what the team did in 2019, then... What, what are you supposed to do? You just pick, you know, players who aren't making that step up. And, you know, I think uh, Curry missed like three tackles or something. And I can see he's getting sort of hammered for that. I mean, did you see Don Brandt's attempted tackle on Duan van der Merwe? I mean, pretty awful, wasn't it? Um, so, you know, I, I think that for England, I think needs some consistency. I wouldn't just, everyone wants to just change, pick a different 15. You can't do that. You've, you've got to have some consistency you know, if you're going to make one change and bring Farrell back to 10, then you've got to keep a lot of the rest consistent, really, because that's the whole point. Build understanding, build confidence. You have to show you've got confidence in your players, otherwise the Borthwick era is going to be getting off to a really bad start there. But being 2018, 2012 up, they should have seen out this game and then we would have been having a really different conversation. And the, the bench just didn't have the impact. Cole had one good scrum, but was slow around the park. Uh, Vunapola wasn't up to pace. Ezekwe didn't have any impact whatsoever when he came off the bench. The bench had no impact on the game. Scotland got stronger and England got weaker. So if I was looking at one thing, I'd be looking at my impact players. I thought that the start is up to about 55 minutes, something like that. Actually, it was a pretty solid performance to go down and end up going in at half-time ahead. And then pulling ahead in the second half, the team should have been putting their foot to the throat and, and, and next score from there. And it's all over, isn't it? Uh, wonder try from Duan van der Merwe and it's you know it's it's all it's all open again. Um, so I wouldn't panic yet. Just as England fans, it is tough to get your selection decisions right. Um, everyone thinks that they can always pick a better player. You know um, that's the, the sport has got to shut that noise out. He's got to pick what he thinks is the form players. What does he see in training? 
You obviously saw something, didn't see enough from Tuolangi, for example. It's amazing. Everyone's going, thank God he's eventually, we've got ourselves off the Tuolangi thing. And you go on Twitter now and see everybody's team for next week, and you've got Tuolangi at 12, haven't you? <laughs> so it's like, you know, everybody is as bad as each other on this. We wouldn't know what to pick either. The um, Just on, on your point on Curry and Donbrant, um, I was reading the Telegraph's player ratings, and, and Ben Curry got four and Donbrant got seven, which is just an absolute disgrace to... Rugby journalism, to be honest, because if Alex Dombrant is getting a seven, then Ben Curry was an eight because Dombrant, as you said, had an awful game. So, listen, uh, this is, as you say, this is the way that picking an England squad is. But you are right that there's a massive amount of vindication for Eddie Jones in these selections because Billy Bonapola's stock has gone up. Manu Tuilangi's stock has gone up. All these players who he got told off for picking, their stock's gone up this weekend and the players who've replaced them have, have, have not. Well, what, what what happens with England, you know, we'll, we'll see over the course of the championship. But uh, two teams where, well, coming into the tournament, it was kind of obvious maybe where that they'd end up, France and Italy. And I guess maybe this is probably the shock of the weekend, considering everything is in just how close Italy ended up running France. Obviously, France, so good still managed to pick up the win. And, you know, if you're a believer in it, it's a sign of just how good they are as a team. Not firing on all cylinders, but still won by 29 points to 24. But Italy, Alex, I know you're a fan. Um, what does this mean for Italy? Uh, super quick. Not, not necessarily to get the win. And I, I said last year, we've got to start talking about Italy's maybe men. And we've got to start producing. But, you know, to, to for the last two games in the Six Nations to be a win over Wales and then pushing France as close as they've ever been. What did you make of that? Yeah, I think it's really encouraging for Italian rugby. I think there's a massive amount of bravery in the way they play as well. Um, the execution isn't quite there, but playing out from the 22 against France, um, people will cotton on to that, so they'll have to change it. But, you know, there's, this is a level of Italian rugby. To be able to even do that, you know, obviously it cost them a try at one point, but to be able to do that regularly is, is encouraging. There's a lot of improvement areas. I think their tactical kicking still needs a massive amount of work and they just don't box kick from nine. But listen, they, they took France very, very close and I think they deserve to be that close. I think they've got real, real talent in that, that back line now that they didn't used to have. And the forwards are, are offering something a bit different to what Italy used to offer, but they're a very mobile part. You know, you look at Negri at six... Um, Roots are in the second row. Um, Canone, th- th- these are players who are really, really talented and, and, and look at home on the international stage. And I think the way they sort of disrupted France and dealt with their threats was really, really good. Um, very, very sort of knew what to pinpoint and, and how to shut down France's threats. And, and listen, this French team are an incredible team. They're they showed a lot of glimpses of it in that Italy game, but Italy managed to make it into a bit of a bit more of a dogfight and, and make the French almost play on their terms. So and then they've obviously got they've got genuine game breakers now in, in not only Capuzzo, but I don't think you saw the best of Menoncello on the wing, who will have a massive impact on this tournament if he continues to play. Um I thought Brex at centre was one of their best performers, just offered something they haven't really had at centre, which is a big physical carrier who can distribute. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of um, a lot of positives in that Italy team. And to be honest, I think two years' time, Italy win that game. This is still a young Italian team. This is They're all still very inexperienced at international level compared to that French team. So, as I say, two, three years' time with more experience, with more games they see that game out because it was in their hands to see it out. And I think actually, you know, there's there's so many more positives from this game than negatives for Italy. Um, and this was all with Tommaso Allen at, at 10. And, you know, you've got Garbisi, who is, you know, supposedly the first choice 10 to come back into that squad. Um, they, they need to sort out nine. Not sure if Stephen Barney is the answer, as, we, as we've said. But they've got um, Garbisi's brother, haven't they? His uh, first name, I can't remember and and yeah so anyway listen alessandro alessandro thank you um <laughs> were you talking to me then no sorry um yeah so they've they've got that talent but what the the great thing for italy is that they're under 20s 
were a kick away from beating France this weekend as well. And their under-20s for the last two or three years have beaten the likes of England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, France. This team is going places and it's going to continue to get better. So very, very good day for Italian rugby. Uh, good for France to get the win and get away with it, but they will have a massive amount to work on this week ahead of Ireland. So I just want to say, I want to talk about Italy and say this 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 shows why people are wrong to say they should be excluded from the Six Nations because all that development is starting to come to fruition. It's really exciting. Two things I need to say before I let James finish up on, on France. Uh, I'm not entirely sure Stephen Vine is good enough to play in the Premiership, let alone Test Rugby. Um, and that, that seem, might seem a bit unfair, but like... Like the, I, I like the player, um, but like he, he he just doesn't pass muster, and and it's a really glaring oversight in an Italian team like you said, Alex, which does seem to be going places with a really nice pipeline of young talent. The second thing, because we haven't mentioned it at all all episode, shocking kit. That away kit is awful. Um, just just absolute bottom of the barrel. Like not not for me at all. I don't know why you pulled that face, Alex. It's uh, I disagree. It's disagree. You can't, there can't be a bad Italy kit. There can't be a bad Italy kit. You, you it's, just it's saw one on Sunday. No, I'm not having it. It's it, there's no, the Italians are good at one thing, and that is kit. <laughs> um, James, see us home then. Just just some quick thoughts on on the French performance, which obviously was a case of um, job done more than anything else. Yes, exactly. Five points as well. Um, so, you know, they, they you know, they, they move on now and they face a really, the, probably the Grand Slam game. Um, so it's going to be a really tough one for them, but I think they'll look to raise, raise the game. You know, look at Galtier. He's, he's, you know, he's in a lot of rotation uh, with this squad over the last two, three years. They seem to have hit, you know, like the last Six Nations, a really winning team. You look at the team this time, and actually there's like five different names in it. Some of them are like, you know, naught to five caps. So we're still trying to find that player who will just, you know, be able to get into the squad and take them to the next level. Um, it's easy to do that when you keep winning. You know, if he was rotating this much with a losing side, he'd no different from any other previous French. You know, they've got a selection issue as well, right? But they're just doing it at the moment where they've got some really solid players in there. Interesting to see Thomas Ramos back at fullback in the absence of Jaminet taking the kicks as well. So they've got obviously got a nice setup there. You can see where they've got a shadow 15 taking place. And obviously Jalibert coming off the bench, you know, first touch of the ball, basically. And, you know, he's a game-changing player. Any other team in the world would be first choice. I mean, he's, he's on a different... Uh, for me, he's on a different level to Marcus Smith, Jalibert. Um, and to Max more of your, you know, he's don't get me wrong, he's got all the skills in the world as well, but he's more of your solid player, isn't he? Better defensively as well. Um, so, you know, I think that France will still be pretty happy that their kind of structures remain pretty much intact. They were holding on by the grit of their teeth, but they didn't completely crack. Um, and to come through and score that try that took the win, I don't know. I still think that there were a lot of their wins this year. Uh, sorry, in the last 12 months have been very close calls. So, you know, we've discussed this before. Is this a team that is just riding the momentum and just sneaking over the line? Or is this a team that, you know, law of averages is going to go against them at some point and they just got to hope that it isn't in a World Cup knockout game? Don't know which one it is because if they are learning how to win close games, they're going to win the next World Cup, aren't they? If it's the first option... <laughs> they're definitely going to win the World Cup. It's the second option, who knows? But uh, no, they, they, they're still um, Flamont as well. You know, he was a he was a um, was for a bit, and he's huh? He's at Loughborough. He's at Loughborough. He's playing Loughborough Fitz. Yeah, Loughborough, yeah. He's he, he a quality Fitz. player. I had him in my fantasy team as well. So watching him go over the line, I was pretty happy about. Um, so yeah, no, look, it's great to see the Six Nations back. Um, shout out for them, the twenties as well. We had a few players in that. Um, for the England under-20s, also Hugh Davis for the, the Wales under-20s. It's just great to see it. And see, that's the narrative, to pull it back to the beginning. The narrative was Six Nations is back. You've got the under-20s on the Friday. You've got your Saturday and Sunday sorted. And I can't wait for, for, for the games next week, especially that game in Dublin. I think it's in Dublin, right? France travelled to Dublin. Four. What a way to what a way to leave it with James going for. Um, we hope everyone enjoyed the pod. Obviously, slightly different format this week because of the Premier Rugby Cup and the Six Nations chat. Um, but obviously, 
when there's so much rugby to go on, we want to talk about all of it. So thank you so much to everyone for listening. Uh, thank you so much to Alex and James for joining me as always. Uh, and we'll speak to you next week off the back of more Prem Rugby action, but most importantly, more, more Six Nations action as well. 